Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you, and there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey friends, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can open up the YouVersion app, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures, those have already been uploaded. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you and I couldn't be more grateful to have you be a part of our spiritual family. Hopelessness, it, it alienates you, doesn't it? it? It isolates you, makes you feel like you're alone, like, You're the only one living the way you're living, dealing with what you're dealing with or struggling with what you're struggling with. Like like your marriage is the only marriage facing challenges. Like you're the only one living paycheck to paycheck, drowning in debt or whose kids are crazy. Like, Like you're the only one worried about their thoughts or the only one overwhelmed with fear, doubt or shame. But you know, that's one of the biggest lies the enemy tells. And, and so I want to talk about that today in a message that we're calling, You Are Not Alone. Let's pray. God, we love you. We honor you. Thank you that you are a friend that sticks closer than any brother, that you said you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us. You would never leave us alone. And so today I pray for my friends who are wrestling, who are fighting, who are struggling. I pray that you would give them peace, that you would give them comfort, that you would reveal to them your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One of the enemy's biggest strategies is to isolate us, to cordon us off and make us feel like our problems and our pain are unique to us, when in reality, not only are billions of people dealing with those same things right now, The Bible is filled with people who did too. Some of the greatest figures in the scriptures went through feelings of hopelessness. Like Adam, like, why did I eat that fruit? Or Abraham, why did I lie about my wife? Like Moses, why did I have to kill that Egyptian? Or David, why did I have to go and sleep with Bathsheba? Like Solomon, why did I need to have so many wives? Why? did I start worshiping their gods? Or Samson, why was I so prideful, so self-centered? Like Peter, why, why would I deny my savior once, never mind three times? And definitely the great apostle Paul. Paul seemingly lived two lives, one that was filled with hope and one that was fraught with hopelessness. One before Jesus and the one after. Before Jesus, he was on the fast track. He was the bell of the ball. He was the favored son of Judaism. 
the son of a Pharisee and the student of the most respected rabbi in the world, which made him the Pharisee of Pharisees with a very real possibility of someday becoming the high priest. After Jesus, he was whipped with 39 lashes five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned and not in the Jerry Garcia way, shipwrecked three times, lost at sea. He faced danger from rivers and robbers, from his own people and the Gentiles, in the cities, the deserts, and on the seas. He worked long and hard, enduring many sleepless nights. He'd been hungry and thirsty, often going without food, and he shivered in the cold without enough clothing to even keep him warm. And that's not even all his sufferings. That list, it only includes the first two thirds of his ministry life. He still had another 11 years of ministry after the list. He'd, he'd still be beaten several times and arrested multiple times. He'd have another shipwreck. He'd be bitten by a poisonous snake and ultimately have his head chopped off for his faith. It, it kind of puts your layoff into a different perspective, doesn't it? Yet with all that suffering in mind, none of those events were the worst of his suffering. In the next chapter, he, he tells of what would end up being the worst of the worst, the single biggest cause of his hopelessness. But interestingly, that sense of hopelessness would be the very thing that revealed his ultimate source of hope. With a fractured name, a ruined career, and the reputation of a blasphemer, he was cast out of his hometown. In 42 AD, he disappeared into the wild country of the Mount Taurus foothills. He, he was forced to live in caves and holes in the ground, eating roots and leaves and bugs. And, and while he was there, he had this vision, this revelation of the Lord that was so supernatural, that was so sacred that he didn't even refer to it for over 14 years. It shook him to his core. Watch this. He said, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know, only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and I heard things so astounding that they can't be expressed in words. Things no human is even allowed to tell. That experience, it's worth boasting about, but, but I'm not gonna. I'll boast only about my weakness. If, if I wanted to boast, I'd be no fool in doing so because I'd be telling the truth. But I won't do it because, because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message, even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I've suffered for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so he has this encounter that, that not only shaped the rest of his life, but would shape the formation of the church and every Jesus follower who would live after him. He spent the rest of his life struggling with this thorn in his flesh to make him realize how God's power works best in weakness, that in our weakness, he is strong. And it was a message that was so important because we all struggle with weakness. 
We're constantly under attack, especially after we commit our lives to Jesus. Because before Jesus, the enemy doesn't have to worry about us for a single second. He doesn't have to assign any demonic forces to distract or destroy us because we're already distracting and destroying ourselves. But the moment we surrender our lives to Jesus, we come under attack. We become public enemy number one. Our wanted poster goes up in the post office of hell. So before Jesus, Paul's life seemed filled with hope. But after Jesus, his life often felt hopeless. And I've experienced that. Like before Jesus, I wasn't worried about nobody but myself. After Jesus, suddenly I was thinking about you, about your marriages and kids, your careers and finances, about your life about your eternity. And Paul, he felt the same thing. After he lists all his sufferings, he said, besides all this, every day I feel the load of my concern for all the churches. I feel weak every time someone's weak. I feel upset every time someone's led into sin. But in my weakness, he is strong. And so he tells the readers of this letter that he prayed three times for the thorn to be removed, but three times he was denied. And that passage of scripture, it uniquely connected him to Jesus. When he said three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away, the struggle in that scripture transported him and transports us back to the Garden of Gethsemane, where where Jesus is suffering in prayer, suffering in prayer to the point of sweating blood. And three times Jesus prays for the cup to be removed, but three times he was denied. So in both Paul and Jesus's case, the removal request was denied. But both cases show us that we are not alone. And we've all found ourselves in a situation like theirs, where the, where the inevitable seems impossible, the unavoidable seems unimaginable. I mean, who hasn't cried out to God and in so many words asked him to remove this cup or to remove this thorn? Who hasn't felt like, whether they're in a desert or in a garden, that they were alone? In the midst of the crushing inevitability, who hasn't wanted to just escape from their situation, from their struggle? from their life, their life, which suddenly feels like an oncoming train destined to run you down. It's, it's the shock you feel when you receive a frightening diagnosis or you're laid off from your job, when a friend dies or a relationship ends, in times where you're saying to yourself, this can't be happening, but it is. So now panic or fear feel like they're the only rational response. I had a friend who discovered that his dad had inoperable cancer. His hero now only had one year to live. He said that he felt lost. He, he said, I, I don't even know where to begin. He was thinking, Lord, remove this cup. Remove this thorn. And it's not just situations that are life-threatening. Like long-term suffering can be just as confusing as a catastrophic illness. Those situations can test our faith in the same way. Like maybe you're stuck in a miserable job with no hope for relief, or you're caring for someone living with a chronic illness and you're wondering how much longer you can go on. And so now you wanna cry out, remove this cup, remove this thorn. 
But then magnifying your situation is the natural fear and panic that can sap our ability to make good decisions because fear and panic can render you barely able to think, let alone pray. So what do we do? How do we continue? Well, Jesus shows us in the garden. He, he doesn't avoid the hard truth of his situation. He, he doesn't ignore his pain or the pain of his friends. Like if you're ever tempted to hide your struggles from the people who love you most, just listen to what Jesus said to his own friends. He said, I'm deeply grieved even to death. <laughs> Guys, those aren't the words of a person who's hiding his feelings. Like he was saying, my soul is sorrowful unto death. I, I mean, he may have been thinking of the words of the 43rd Psalm. My soul is cast down within me. Like he was struggling. He's in a fight not just for his life, but for all of our lives, for all of our eternity. But that wasn't the only fight that he was in. In his groundbreaking book, The Death of the Messiah, New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, he, he suggests that if Jesus knew in his heart about his friend's coming betrayal and about the fact that they would scatter after his death, that must have weighed on him like heavily. So not only did his arrest cause him intense sorrow, but his friend's coming betrayal was the straw that was trying to break the camel's back. The very thought of it might have felt like it alone was enough to kill him. And, and, and so in other words, he, he might have been saying like, my sadness is so intense that it feels like it might kill me. Please don't leave me to fight this alone. Couldn't you stay alert one hour with me. And I'm sure the disciples were shook. When they heard his words, they might have found themselves deeply grieved. Like, imagine what it must have felt like for them to see Jesus visibly upset. The one who'd always brought calm to their lives. The, the one who brought calm in the midst of a terrifying demoniac, a frightening storm, a crushing crowd asking for food, and two sisters grieving over their brother's death now admits to being greatly distressed. But in this, Jesus shows, just because you're counted on to always be the person of peace doesn't mean you have to hide your feelings, that you have to feel alone. Expressing your feelings honestly in difficult times, that, that, that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of humility. It, it's a sign of humanity. It's a way to invite the people you love into your life, an invitation for them to, to love you. It allows us to set aside our desire to constantly need to be in control. And so both Jesus and Paul prayed three times for the problem to pass before they ever reached a sense of peace. They took the time to process their problem, to process their pain through prayer. Like, you know, I, I think we far too often feel obligated to skip the remove this cup or the remove this thorn because we think we need to immediately surrender to the nevertheless your will be done or the in my weakness you are strong. But sometimes we need to linger with our feelings and to express them fully to God. Like, why do we feel guilty about asking for what we want or asking about what we wish we could be relieved of? I think partially because the enemy makes us feel like those kind of prayers are just complaints. But y'all, there, there have been times where I've cried out to God and there have been times that I've just flat cussed 
got out. Like, remove this cup, remove this thorn. Boop, and you'd have to put the little expletives over that. But it was a process that I needed to follow through on for my healing, for my deliverance. I mean, he already knew it's how I felt or what I was thinking. And me not communicating it or suppressing it wasn't making him love me any more than admitting it and processing it made him love me any less. It was in the admitting it and processing it that I realized I am not alone. I'm not alone whether he does what I want or gives me what I want. And the deep, honest expression of painful emotions is a process that even the great apostle and our savior himself went through. But the key is not living in the lingering. Neither Paul nor Jesus ended their prayers by acknowledging their feelings. They identified them, they processed them, and they released them by trusting in God, by conforming their wills to him, even in their darkest moments, even when they felt hopeless, because they recognized when you've got something hitting you in your soul, when you feel alienated, isolated, when you feel like you're alone, like you're the only one living the way you're living, dealing with what you're dealing with or struggling with what you're struggling with, you can't deal with it alone. So you have to submit yourself to the fact that even in the deepest, darkest, most difficult moments of your life, in your weakness, he is strong because you are not alone. Would you close your eyes? You know, salvation is this great recognition of the fact that we are not alone, that there is a savior, there is a God who sees us, who loves us, and who wants to welcome us into relationship with him. And so maybe you're here and you're not in that type of a relationship with him. You've, you've not submitted yourself to him. You've not surrendered yourself to him. You've not become connected to him. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And it's a very simple process. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that you're a sinner, but that you believe that Jesus can save you, you will be saved. So here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to say a few lines in a prayer. And if you repeat those words and you mean them in your heart, you will be saved. And so would you say this, Jesus, I'm a sinner but I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you change me? Would you come into my life, make me different, make me new, be my Lord, and be my savior in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Friend, if you prayed that prayer, congratulations. You just made the greatest decision of your life. I want the opportunity to connect with you and I want to follow through with you. And so if you prayed that prayer, would you do us a favor and would you just reach out to us? Would you connect with us so that we can help you walk the next step in your journey toward Jesus? But maybe you're watching this and you say, I'm saved, uh, but you feel alone. If that's you, I want to pray for you because I've been there. And so Jesus, thank you for my friends. I pray comfort over them. I pray peace over them. I pray as they feel this sense of aloneness that you'd let them know that you haven't left. You haven't forsaken them. You're with them. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.